Uh, we're going to continue the uh, series that we started last week leading up to Easter titled Instead of Me. Um, and Buffy kicked it off last week showing us the, uh, not only how Jesus was not only betrayed for me, but also he was betrayed because of me. And uh, last week, uh, uh, like Buffy said, we're going to be spending the next several weeks looking at the events that led up to the crucifixion and see how through those events, through the things that, that led up to the crucifixion, God was actually doing an examination of us. And because of the way Matthews tells these stories, um, and especially as what we look at today, the, the arrest, um, and then the, we'll, we'll see in the future the trial of Jesus. And the way Matthew tells these stories, he's putting a big old magnifying glass on us and on our hearts. We can see that we are really the ones that are on trial, right? It looks like Jesus is on trial, but in God's eyes, it's, it's us. It's really us. And so we should see ourselves in these stories, all right? And, uh, and, and as we do, as we see ourselves in these stories, what we'll do is we'll learn why Jesus came and did what he had to do, right? He came and did what he felt he had to do, or he came and did what he absolutely had to do. And we'll see that in these stories. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and stand. Matthew 26. And as, you, as you're standing, I'll go ahead and tell you, I, on the front end, this is difficult for me. This has been really hard for me, especially today. Um, somebody who really leans more on teaching than preaching, it, to, to take this passage of Scripture and preach it in one sermon was difficult. There's two, probably three sermons here, and I've got to get it all in one. And it's really hard to figure out what to leave out. All right, and so uh, I'm going to do my best as I can today. We're going to start in verse 36. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he, and he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch for, with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. And the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again and a second, uh, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again, and he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking rest? Behold, the hour is at hand of the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at, is at hand. Jeez, I thought I was missing a page in my Bible. I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't. Okay. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then he came and laid hands on Jesus 
Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for those, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will not at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching you, teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. As we come to your word today, Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for preserving it for us, Lord, so that we may know exactly what it is that you would have us to know through this word today. Lord, you created this world and you created it with a perfect plan in place. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for creation. We thank you for the life of Jesus and, the, and that which had to happen so that we may know salvation, so that we may know you, so that we may come to you and be intimate with you and have a relationship with you, Lord. All of this had to happen so that Scripture may be fulfilled. So, Lord, we thank you for it. Sometimes it's hard to read. Sometimes it's hard to, to see all that Jesus had to go through and the agony and the torture that he had to face. But, Lord, it was your plan set forth before the foundation of the world, and we stand here this morning thanking you for it. We love you. We give you all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory now. In Jesus' holy and beautiful name we pray. Amen. This was um, some pretty heavy scripture, some big time scripture. And it's not a text as we come to it today that, that we need to get cute and creative with uh, and, and, and we need to do a lot of illustrating or, or application. I believe God through Matthew gave us this scripture for two reasons. Number one, to comfort us with the extent of what Jesus did for us and to show us how we should respond to it. So one of the things that we have to recognize from this is that, is that Jesus appears to be going to death here. He appears to be going to death in a state of weakness, almost scared. I'm careful how I say that because I know that's not how we're accustomed to seeing Jesus in Scripture. We're not accustomed to seeing him scared. We're not accustomed to seeing him um, weak. But that's, that's, that's what we see, I believe, through this text. Look at, I mean, and, and look at how most of Jesus' followers, how they led their lives or how they faced death. They, they didn't face it scared. They didn't face it full of fear. They died boldly. They died fearless. Uh, you've heard the story of Polycarp, I hope. M most of you heard the story of Polycarp, right? He was a disciple of John's, and when they came to arrest him when he was 86 years old, he asked for one last time to pray. And then when they tied him to the stake, they asked him if he had any last words before they burned him at the stake. And in a very loud voice, this is what he said. And I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he said to him. He said, you think I'm afraid of this fire? You think I'm afraid of this fire? It burns for just a moment and it's gone. It's gone. You should be afraid of the fires of hell. I'm not scared of these temporary flames. You should be afraid of the eternal ones. And then he said, come on, boys, start the fire. That's a martyr right there. 
That's a martyr for Christ. But here in this text, in our text, we see that Jesus has a bit of a different spirit. He's trembling. He's stammering. He's going back and forth between God and the disciples. And he's almost, uh, he's doing it almost uncontrollably. He's asking God if there's another way. And, uh, and Matthew even says in verse 39 that he falls face down. He's too weak to even stand up. And Martin Luther even said that never have we seen a man fear death like this man. And what's really weird about it, as I said already before, other places in Scripture, Jesus is the one that's fearless. He's the one. I mean, right before this, the disciples were trying to discourage him from going, going to Jerusalem because it was too dangerous for him. They didn't want him going there. And, but he told them it was his destiny. He had to go. And then after this, we'll see that he stares down Pilate with some pretty big time boldness right after his arrest here. So my question is, what's going on here? Right here in this moment, right now, why is Jesus so full of fear? Why is he scared? Verse 37 says that as he prayed, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Sorrowful and troubled. So, began means that he saw something as he was praying. It surprised him. So, it began at that moment. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And the word translated sorrowful, it's a very strong Greek word. It's the, it's the Greek word lupeo, and it means horrified. It means horrified, especially when you combine it with the word trouble. And so one commentator said that what Jesus was feeling in this very moment, it's the kind of feeling that you'd have if you came home and you found your family mutilated and murdered. That's, the horf, that's, that's how horrified he was in this very moment. So what Jesus saw was so troubling to him that he almost died because of it. Look at verse 38. It says, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. So if you take the rest of Scripture into account and take everything that we know about Jesus, we know that he's not the kind of person that exaggerated, right? Especially at a time like this. So that means that he saw something that was so terrible, that was so horrifying to him that he almost literally died under the burden of it. Matter of fact, Luke says that what he saw caused him so much anxiety that he literally started to sweat drops of blood. And that's a real condition. And Buffy, you might have to help me with this one, but it's hematridosis. I said that right. Hematridosis. So basically it's a condition where you're under so much stress that your capillaries burst. And, and you begin to, it looks like that you're sweating drops of blood. And so that's what happened uh, with Jesus here. He was so stressed that, uh, that this condition happened. And so here's Jesus, right? He's the eternal Word of God. He's the, he's, the, he's the one who spoke the world into existence. He walked on water. He calmed storms, cast out demons, healed diseases, and brought people back from the dead. And he's so horrified at something right here that, that he sees that his capillaries burst and it nearly causes him to die based on what he saw. So what was it that caused it? What in the world could he have seen that caused him, God in the flesh, to get so horrified and so troubled? Well, the real question is, what had he not seen? What had he not seen? Verse 39, when he called out to God the Father, and it was the same way he had done hundreds probably of other times, several other times we know of in Scripture, throughout his life, he heard absolutely nothing. No response from God. 
He calls out to, to God as Abba here. That's what the word means that he used, it's the, the term of close intimacy. But for the first time in all of eternity, God was silent. The Father was silent. See, up until this point, Jesus had this close intimacy with the Father. So much so that, that we know he, when things got tough for him, he, what did he do? He withdrew. He withdrew and he went to be alone with his Father to connect with God. And, I mean, that's where he drew his strength and what, where he drew his comfort from. The Father had always been connected and always been open to the Son, but now there was only silence. Only silence. And so Jesus, he stumbled back and forth to the disciples. He was looking for some kind of comfort. They were asleep. He wakes them up and he says, look, I need you to be up with me. I need you all to stay awake and be up with me. It's like, almost like a child who didn't want to be alone, right? But the disciples, they weren't any help. They were asleep. They were sleeping while the most significant moment in the history of the world was happening right in front of them. Right in front of them. This was the most significant moment in the history of the world. And they slept. They were the ones that were being disloyal to the one who had been nothing but loyal to them. So they slept while heaven and, uh, while heaven and hell hung in the balance. And so verse 42, he goes back again to the Father. He says the same exact thing. He's, Father, is there any other way? Save me from this. But more silence. More silence from God. So what's going on? Why is God silent? Well, William Lane, who's a, who's a New Testament scholar, he says that the only explanation for these events is that here in Gethsemane, God had already began to turn his face away from Jesus. Before the first nail was even driven into his body, Jesus' soul was being abandoned by God. And we know Jesus had lived his entire life up to this point with approval from the Father. And now, in the very moment that Jesus needed his Father the most, God turned his face away. And Jesus staggered under the weight of it. He was almost to the point of death. He almost to the point he couldn't deal with not being connected to God. William Lane says, he said, this is the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father, who came to be with his Father for a brief interlude before his death and found hell rather than heaven open before him. So he was facing isolation, complete and total isolation. He, and not only did he feel, feel isolation, he felt rejection. And you think about it for a second. You think about uh, one of your parents turning their backs on you. In the time you need them the most, the very time you need them the most, and, and, and a time of pain and a time of weakness, you're looking for comfort from your family, from your parents. In that very moment, they turn their back, turn their back on you and they say, you're not my child. Now, can you imagine how crushing that would be to you? How, how hard that would be for you? I can't even fathom what it had to be like for Jesus. In his most desperate moment, losing the love of God the Father, one that he's known for all of eternity, and it's gone. Something he's always known, always experienced, always had. Whatever he called upon him, the Father was there. And this time he was not. And really, there's nothing I can say that, that, that'll make us really understand what, uh, what Jesus was going through. We, we will never be able to understand how hard this was for him. There's no illustration we can give that'll help us understand. It, it, was, it had to be bitter. It had to be a, the darkest, one of the darkest moments, if not the darkest moment of his life. But somehow in that one moment, Jesus experienced the equivalent of an eternity in hell. Isn't that what hell is? 
complete, total abandonment of God. That's what hell is, right? Most of us have seen, probably seen the Passion of the Christ movie, right? We've seen that movie. <clears throat> and, and the phys physical torture Jesus went through. We saw that. We, we saw how he was beaten, how bad he was beaten on the way to the cross. And it was bad, right? A lot of people say it was even worse than what the movie depicted. And the movie was pretty, pretty rough. Because the goal of the Romans was complete and utter humiliation. They beat the people they were killing almost to the point they were almost barely recognizable. And it wasn't uncommon to see a rib go flying uh, off of a person as they beat them. And based on other non-biblical resources, scholars were almost certain that Jesus was beaten so badly that he was at least partially gutted. Think about how bad that is. Disemboweled, partially. Then they had nine-inch nails driven through him and a crown of thorns pressed into his head. Isaiah said he was beaten to a point that he didn't even look like a man. And I want to stop just a second and share something with you about this crown of thorns. Flip to, to Genesis 3, if you will. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, we'll start at verse 17. Then Adam, he said, because you have lived or because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you in toil. You shall eat from it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And because from it or because from it, you were taken for dust for you are dust and to dust. You shall return. So the sin of man that we see in Genesis, the sin of man caused the ground to be cursed with thorns and thistles. And the day Jesus died, those same thorns came that came because of our sin were pressed into his head. Now talk about a picture of what the sin of man did to the Son of God. Because those thorns wouldn't have been on this earth had we not sinned. That's a picture. I mean, just I mean, it just amazes me how God connects so many things here in Scripture. But he was nailed to a cross. He was he was stripped naked, and he was in a public place in full daylight. And so, the, yeah, the physical torture that Jesus suffered was was terrible. But listen to me, that's not in Gethsemane. That's not what made Jesus stagger in the garden. It was the abandonment of God that he faced. That was the horror of the cross form. That's, that's why the gospel writers, honestly, they didn't focus much on the physical aspects of the crucifixion. They don't go into the, to the tough, really gory details of it because the physical suffering, as bad as it was, was not the essence of Calvary. It was not the essence of Calvary. The essence of Calvary was the abandonment of God. See, in the garden, Jesus, he, he looked right into the full cup of God's wrath and it overwhelmed him so much that it almost killed him. Gethsemane means, does anybody know what it means? Yeah, oil press, olive press. And, and that what was, that's what was happening. Right? The reality of God's wrath against our sin was pressing in on Jesus. It was literally squeezing the life out of him. And so he prayed three times, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. 
Think about it. Think about Scripture. Think about the entirety of Scripture, what we have available to us. Was there ever any other time that Jesus prayed that God wasn't there? But right here, at this moment, God was silent. And He was silent because there was no other way. No other way. Isaiah 51, 17 says, God's wrath against our sin is like poison kept in a cup. It says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who, who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have, drunk, who, who have drunk to the dregs. So a cup offered, uh, as, as it was offered, as the cup was offered to us, the cup of God's wrath offered to us, Jesus stepped in the path. He stepped in the way and he drank it for us all the way down to the dregs. That's substitution, right? That's love. Jonathan Edwards says it was like a dam breaking. Or, or Spurgeon said it was, he compared it to a gnat being run over by a freight train. Think about it. There was no other way. Our salvation was something only God himself could accomplish. Jonathan Edwards said, why would God open up for Jesus the horrors of the cross like this in Gethsemane? It was so, it was so we, could, we could see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily knowing full well what he was about to experience. So that his love for us would be put on display even more. It's Romans 5, 8, isn't it? It's exactly what it is. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One of the accounts of this uh, says an angel came to minister to Jesus at this point. We don't, know what the, we don't know what the angel said, how he ministered to Jesus, but we do know uh, that the writer of Hebrews says that when Jesus got up from here to go to the cross, he did so with joy because something that had been set before him. So what was set before him? What did he see? He saw the horrors of God's abandonment, but then an angel came to minister to him at this point. And so then he went to the cross with joy. What did he see that caused the joy? After being so horrified that he almost died, you know, when he started sweating drops of blood, something completely, turns, he does a 380 and something completely changes. And now he's full of joy going to the cross, almost running to the cross. What was it? You know? What did Jesus see that made the cross worth it? Well, what did he have? What did he not have on that side of the cross that he has on this side of the cross? Us. Us. He has us. There was only one thing that he saw. Us. So how great a father, 1 John 3, 1. So see how great a, a love of the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. There was no other way to save us. This was the only way. And so he did it, and he did it with joy. So really, there's no bigger insult to Jesus than to say that there are multiple ways to salvation. And I know a lot of people will, 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 will try to um, be compassionate and be open-minded uh, to their friends, and they don't want to hurt their families. They put those coexist bumper stickers on the back of their car. But honestly, there's no bigger insult to Jesus than that. Jesus that looked at his father and said, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. And there are other ways. There are a lot of other ways and God just didn't tell Jesus about it. There's no bigger insult to Jesus than to say we should all coexist. This passage, I said, was, uh, was there for two reasons, to confront us with what Jesus did and to show us how to respond. So let's look at how Peter responded. Verse 47 
While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived, a large, and a large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and the elders of the people. He betray, uh, his betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. And so immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Verse 50, Jesus said, Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? And this is a sincere question. This isn't sarcastic. Jesus know what, knows why he's there, but it's not a, a sarcastic statement. It's actually sincere. Jesus was faithful to Judas to the very end. Even here, he's given him one more chance. One more chance. I want you all to understand this. If you die and go to hell, if you die and bust the doors of hell wide open, it's not because God turned his back on you. The last voice you'll hear as you step off into the, into the lake of fire is God or Jesus saying, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. Verse 50 says, Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. And so from John's gospel, we know that was Peter. We know it was Peter. And Jesus said to him, he said, Peter, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you, not, do you, or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? Anybody know how much a legion was? Hmm? 5,000. A legion of soldiers was 5,000 soldiers. So 12 legions would have been 60,000 angels. So just a frame of reference, in Revelation 7, it says that it only took four angels to destroy the earth at the last judgment. Only four angels to destroy every army on earth. But Jesus has at his disposal 60,000. The point is, Jesus has plenty of power, right? He's got plenty of power. He ain't dying because he got caught up in a bad situation. That's not what's happening here. Look back at the text. He's still talking to Peter, verse 54. How then would Scripture be fulfilled that's, uh, that say it must happen this way? In other words, it's all according to the plan. It's all according to God's plan. The prophets spoke all of the, the prophets, plural, spoke all of these things, all of these things into, uh, all of these things in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, and let me mention a few of them. You can write some of these references down. In Zechariah 9, Tells us the Messiah would be, betrayed, would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah 53 says uh, that's where we, where we see that the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions. Psalm 22 explains that the Messiah's clothes would, clothes would be divided up and his hands and feet pierced, though not a bone would be broken. And there's about 300 other prophecies, just like them. But Peter and none of the disciples in this moment can see any of this. They're not able to see the truth of what's happening right around, all around them and in front of them. So what does verse 56 say? That all of the disciples deserted him and ran away. Last week Buffy talked about, <coughs> excuse me, he talked about how all of us were, were Judas. All of us were Judases. Well this week, real quick, I want to run through and show us how we're all like Peter too. Every one of us are Peters. He had a misunderstanding of two things, and so, and so do we. We have a misunderstanding of these two things as well. First, the first thing he misunderstood was his own condition. The first thing Peter misunderstood was his own condition. When he pulled out the sword, he's thinking, Lord, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm one of the good guys. Let's, let's execute these bad guys. Right? But Jesus says, Peter, there are no good guys. And the only way I can save you is if I'm slain by the sword. 
If you remember back in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and, in, uh, Adam and Eve sinned, God locked their way back into His presence. How? How did He block their way back into His presence? Yeah. An angel with a flaming sword. That's how He did it. Well, here we are back in the garden, and Jesus, who, Jesus is the one, the only person in the history of the world that has any right to ever use the sword, and He steps in front of it for us. He doesn't use it. He steps in front of it. So Peter doesn't understand the, the gospel of substitution because he still ple believes in a gospel of self-salvation. So when you think you're a good person, that, that a good person that doesn't need saving, or, or you think you're good enough to save yourself, or you think you're one of the good guys, what you're doing is you're looking down in judgment on other people. Right? And according to the Word of God, there, there are no good people. There are no good people and bad people, right? There are only people who rebel against God. So we should all stand and, and praise and thank God that Jesus saves bad people. Because that's the only kind of people there are, is bad people. But what we do, most of us, we do, we, we, what we want to do is divide the word and the world into two categories. We want to divide the world into two categories. It's the bad guys, the bad people, and then us. So it's all the bad people and then us. So whatever group you're in, you always look at the other side as bad, right? Because you're not bad. It's everybody else that's bad, that other group of people. So if you're a Republican, then Democrats are bad. If you're a Democrat, then Republicans are bad. Or what about this one? If you're a Calvinist, then Arminians are bad. Or if you're an Arminian, then Calvinists are bad. And what we want to do is just take and wield the sword against the other side. Maybe not a literal sword, but we stand in judgment on them because they're bad people, Right? The other side are bad people. Well, what Scripture teaches is that there's no you and them, right? There's no us and them. It's we. We. We're all bad people under judgment. Every one of us, from the moment we take our first breath, are bad people under the judgment of God. So none of us deserve to, to, to bring a sword against somebody else. None of us do that. And the only one that ever had the right to use the sword against anybody, against us or anybody on the other side, he stood under it for us. The only person in the history of the world that had the right to use a sword didn't use it, but he stood, he stood under it and took it. That's why you hear Buffy and I uh, both say that Jesus didn't die just for you. He instead died, he, he died instead of you, right? So that's the first thing Peter doesn't, doesn't understand was his own condition. The second thing Peter doesn't understand is, uh, is kingdom power kingdom power. He picked up the sword um, because he thought like most people in the world think the, way, the only way that you can bring cho uh, change in the world is through what? Force. The only way you can bring change in the world is through force. But Jesus says through my death I'm going to release a power that is greater than the sword. I'm going to release a power greater than the sword. Greater than any twelve legions of angels. And so one of the reasons that um, <clears throat> that's Jesus says that he was going to release a power that was greater than the sword. One of the reasons that, uh, <clears throat> that I don't watch a lot of news is because the media thinks that the power makes a difference, right? And what I mean by that is, uh, is they, and they, they, they think whoever sits in the Oval Office and controls the federal budget is the one in power. They believe the one that holds that power 
is the one that makes a difference in the world. But I don't care if your name is Trump or Obama or Bush or Clinton or Reagan or Kennedy or Lincoln or Washington, you got zero power. Zero power. Think about it. Even if you're not religious, if you go ask somebody who's the most influential person in the history of the world, who's, who's changed more societies and lives than any other person, the answer you're likely going to get is probably Jesus. But how many elections did he win? How many nations did he conquer? None. He literally had nothing. He gave his life as a sacrifice. Now Muhammad, he rode in a horse, he rode in on a horse and conquered cities. But Jesus was born in a manger and washed his disciples' feet. So salvation doesn't come riding in on Air Force One. It comes in the womb, it comes in the womb of a poor virgin girl. The cross that means that our values, our values about power are absolutely wrong. The way to change the world is how? It's by serving people, not conquering them. That's not how you change the world. We change, the, we change them by speaking the word of God to them and serving them. And understand, I'm talking about kingdom power here. I'm talking about the power of, of God, the kingdom of heaven. The text is not, not talking about uh, and not saying that the government should never, should never bear the sword. Because Jesus taught that God established governments and gave them power and the power of the sword to keep peace and institute justice. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. If you go back to any great movement of God, you'll see that, that, that the people who embrace the way of the cross, God's way of releasing his power into the world, not through force, not through riches, but through the power of the cross, that's what brought on any great movement of God, if you look through the history, through the history of the world. And that, that's why we say that God doesn't need your money, right? How many times have you heard us say that God doesn't need your money? He's not sitting in heaven thinking, oh, if I only had their money, could, could, I, expand, could I expand my kingdom on earth? If they, just, if they just love me and give me their money. What he will do, though, is he'll use, he'll use your sacrificial giving like he did with a woman with two mites. Don't flatter yourself to think you have enough money to make a difference. You don't. He has 12 legions of angels, right? 60,000 angels. He won't bless your money and multiply it with his power no matter how much it is. If it doesn't represent sacrifice, he will not bless and multiply your riches. No matter what you give, no matter what you do, unless it's, it represents sacrifice. I don't care what Creflo or Joel or Benny or Kenneth or any of their fathers here locally tell you. I don't care. It's not true. <clears throat> I don't know. A lot of, how many of you have heard of Jim Elliott? I know Amy said she was reading a, a book about him. But Jim Elliott, probably one of the most significant uh, missionaries and, and his story is one of the most significant missionary stories of the last century. But in 1956, after a few years of trying to, they, they tried to reach one of the most unreached and violent tribes in Ecuador, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and three other men, they landed their plane on a beach to establish contact with this, uh, with this tribe. And their first meeting went really well with them. But at their second meeting, and it happened on January 8, 1956, a group of warriors from the tribe stabbed the five men with spears and left their bodies floating in the river. A few years later, the wives of the men and their children continued their efforts. to re So they, they reached the tribe, they established contact, but they went and they built schools and they built hospitals. And then they taught them the Bible. And Steve Saint, who was the son of Nate Saint, he actually led, the, led to Christ and baptized the very man who killed his father. 
But not only that, they adopted him into their family as a surrogate grandfather. Now think about that. Could you do that? Man that murdered your father in cold blood. That's what this, that's what this man did. But here's part of the story that a lot of people don't know. The moment they were murdered, Jim Elliott and his friends, the other, the other four men, they were armed. They had loaded guns on them. But when they recovered the bodies, they saw not a single shot had been fired. Just, just the day before, they, they recovered one of Jim Elliott's journals, and what they found was just the day before, um, they, they, they all came into an agreement as a group, as five of them as a group, that they would never shoot and kill and fire their weapon at a tribesman who didn't know Jesus. Steve Saint explained it this way. He said, my dad, knew, uh, my dad knew that if he died, he would go to heaven. He also knew that if the men attacking him died, they would not go to heaven. So he did for them what Jesus did for him. When it came to the hour of decision, he decided not to take life, but to offer it. Now, how powerful is that? So the church, the true church, the biblical church, it's not built through the power of the sword, but it's built by the power of the cross. Amen? So by pulling out the sword, Peter shows that he doesn't get the cross. He doesn't get it. And so in that way, he's got a lot in common with Judas. A lot. Peter and Judas look at first like they're on opposite sides because Judas betrays Jesus, but Peter defends him. But actually, they suffer from the same problem. Both think that suffering is incompatible with Jesus' mission. Neither of them understand that actually it's central to Jesus' mission. Suffering. See, Jesus wanted to, Judas wanted to see Jesus go to the cross so he could get rid of him. But Peter wanted Jesus to avoid the cross to protect him. But both men were clueless that the cross was why Jesus came. Jesus had to take the cup of God's wrath. He didn't come to, to wield the sword, but he stepped under it for us. It was the only way salvation could be offered to us. The only way. So true salvation, it's not something that we can go out and achieve and earn and, 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 and earn our way to, right? True salvation is not something we can achieve, but it's something that we receive. It's Christianity. Christianity turns religion upside down. Amen? Because it says that salvation is not something we achieve, but it's something that we must receive as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and, not that, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that none may boast. So Jesus went to the garden alone so that he could purchase salvation for you. So that he could drink your cup and so that he could bear your sword. Have you received it? Have you received it? Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much this morning. And Lord, as we look back and reflect on what you've actually done for us, Lord, we should all come to the altar this morning, be on our knees and be on our faces humbled and thanking you for what you've done for us. As a matter of fact, Lord, I pray that every person in this room stands up this morning and comes and prays and thanks you for what you have done for us. You drink our cup all the way down to the dregs. You drink the very sin. So, so, so the, 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 even the best, even the best sin, if there's even it's a, such a thing, the best sin in my life was enough to kill you. The smallest sin in my life enough to hang you on the cross.
God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. We love you, Lord, and I pray now that ever be any amongst us that don't know your son, Jesus, that the eyes would be, would, would, that the scales would fall off of their eyes as the gospel is proclaimed. We love you when we honor you now in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. So really, this whole sermon has been the gospel. There's really no, I mean, he came, why? He came so that we may know the Father. He came because there was no other way. He came and he died because there was no other way man could be saved than God himself coming, bankrupting heaven and coming and living and, and, and walking this earth and doing the very thing that we couldn't do, which was to keep the law perfectly. And so he could be the perfect substitute to go to the cross, hang on the cross, be killed for us. So he died for us. Understand that. You don't deserve salvation. You don't deserve forgiveness. You don't deserve heaven or riches or glory. Why? Because you're not a good person. There's only bad people in this world and every person in this room is one of those bad people, including myself, because I stand at the front of the line. He did it not because you deserve it, not because you've done anything to earn it, but because he loves you. He came and he took the whole wrath of your sin. It's not the, like I already said earlier, it's not the, the beating that he took that we should look to, even though that was pretty bad. But it was taken on the wrath of God. And the wrath of God was the abandonment of God. The only time in the history of Jesus' life that he had ever been abandoned by his father took place. And that all of it happened for us. It all happened for us. So this morning, if you don't know the love of Christ, if you have never submitted yourself, then this morning during this time of invitation, it's the day. Of, this one scripture says, "Today is the day of salvation." Don't walk out of this place today without coming and falling on your face. Number one, if you've never received Christ, do that first. But number two, every person in here should come to this altar, fall on their face, and thank God. For the sacrifice that he made. So as Miss Brenda plays, what, what are three thirty? Three thirty. As we all stand and sing, and I hope Miss Brenda is the only one singing because I hope we all come and fall on our face at this altar this morning and thank God, thank Jesus for what He's done for us. Let's all.